So we're here we are in the second week of the semester. Um, I suppose that uh, the honeymoon phase for our new students is, uh, is now behind us or um, that uh, syllabus shock period maybe has uh, waned and we're moving into that uh, more somber uh, season of looking at our course syllabi and seeing all the work that's yet to be done and that steep hill uh, yet to climb. So how do, we, uh, how do we engage this work that's before us? Uh, some of you probably have already begun to look and say, okay, here are all the assignments. I'm going to work them out. And, and um, maybe you already begin to think about what marks you're going to get. You know, how much work am I going to need to get the mark on this course that, that I want? Um, over, over the decades of teaching here, um, uh, I've begun to see uh, students in different categories related to marks. And I think uh, my fellow colleagues and the faculty will be able to affirm this, but um, there are students who kind of gravitate to one end or the other of the scale. And uh, what I mean by this, for example, on one end of the spectrum, um, there is overachieving Annie. And uh, overachieving Annie gets straight A's in all of her courses. Uh, she's always early for class uh, and on time with all of her assignments. She sits on the front row. Uh, and sets the pace for all the other students. Um, she's also sometimes angry at herself and occasionally at the prof if she makes anything less than a 98% on any of her assignments. So uh, perhaps maybe you, you know some, some uh, uh, students like this overachieving Annie's. They know the syllabus better than the instructor does. <laughs> then on the other end of the spectrum, we have clueless T. Carl. Now, T for tardy because Carl is frequently late for class and max out all of his absences. Um, he can't read emails because they're more than 50 characters long. And his first question is always, will this be on the next exam? Um, read the syllabus, the prof says. Syllabus? What syllabus? Is there a syllabus? He's great at math, though because he can calculate down to the smallest fraction the lowest mark he needs to get in order to pass the course. And then somewhere in between Annie and Carl is who I affectionately call Ernest Eddie. And Eddie realizes he's not going to keep pace with Annie, uh, and that's okay with him. Because he wants to make good marks, yes, but he is really more interested in the learning. Uh, he's live life long enough to know that in perspective that is what is most important. Uh, but he's going to work really hard in the midst of all that's going on in his life, his family, his work, his ministry, and do the best with the resources and time and abilities that God has given him. And in the end, he won't be so much worried about his GPA, but his G-A-R, that is God's approval rating in his life. But let's ask a bigger question here today, and not so much about what about marks on an individual assignment or in a class or even a graduating GPA as you walk across the stage and receive your diploma. But my question I want to have for you today is what will mark your life? What will be the distinguishing features or characteristics of a man or woman of God? By what will you be known? And that's a question for all of us, not just students. To help us get at the answer to this question, I want us to turn to the Apostle Paul and to his letter in, to the Galatians, the churches in the province of Galatia, 
and look at the really the closing uh, of this letter. So if you have your Bibles and you open up to uh, Galatians 6, um, I'll begin reading in verse 11, read to the end, and then we'll come back and zero in on a portion of this paragraph. Galatians 6.11, Paul writes, Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even, even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard, and mercy even to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And one of the interesting things about Paul's letters is you can compare them and their structure and how they flow and their arguments. And what you find when you look at Galatians is that this letter ends very differently than all of his other letters. It's, it's quite unique. There, there are not a lot of warm fuzzies. Greet everybody with a holy kiss. I'm coming to visit you and all those types of things. Actually, he concludes the letter much like he's been arguing all the way through, trying to make his point against those Judaizers, those opponents who are attacking his teaching in the churches in the province of Galatia. They, they are teaching something that goes along the lines that you can earn right standing with God by fulfilling and keeping the, the law, the Jewish law, the works of the law. Do the works of the law and you're good with God. And circumcision that's mentioned a couple times here is symbolic of all of that. Ritual circumcision of that, the the male children on the eighth day of their, after their birth to mark them as part of the people of God was kind of a, an umbrella idea for all of the works of the law. And that's what they were doing. And Paul says that's, that's anathema. That's a curse. He said that's some other gospel that's not really a gospel at all. And so he begins to, even in the closing, he can't sign off this letter without putting one more point in about that. You know, it's often been said that you can tell a lot about someone by what they boast about. Think about that maybe in your own life. What do you talk about? What do you brag about? What are you proud about? What do you tell others about? And these opponents were boastful that they could keep the law, and then they were boastful all the people they could convince to keep the law. But the scriptures tell us a, a good bit about boasting. And in fact, even in the Old Testament, uh, Jeremiah has a, has a great passage here in, in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, if you want to go back and, and read it. But it says, don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Don't let the mighty man boast in his might. Don't let the rich man boast in his riches. Those things about uh, being smart and being powerful and, and being wealthy that uh, our world measures status by, those are not things to boast about. So if you're going to boast in one thing, boast in that you know me. I'm the Lord God, compassionate, long-suffering, and caring. That's worth boasting about.
And Paul seems to grab a hold of that idea. We know he knows this passage because he quotes it directly in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 at the end of that chapter. But here in Galatians, it seems that he has that in mind too because he's going to talk about, he's going to boast. And what is he going to boast about? You see it in verse 14. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to boast in the Lord and he's going to boast in the sacrificial death of Christ. And for him, that is the most important thing in his life. For us to hear that in our day and age, especially those of us who've grown up in church, it does not have the shock value that it would have had were the Christians in this church, and especially the Jewish Christians. The whole idea of the cross was, was not uh, something that's beautiful and pleasant to think about. But it was a shocking term. Uh, this idea of execution, putting someone to death. If you were hung on a cross, you were cursed of God. And in polite Roman society, you didn't even mention the word cross or crucifixion. You wouldn't speak it. Cicero, in one of his writings, talking about a man who was going to be crucified, he said, hang him on the unlucky tree. as a euphemism not to have to mention the word cross. But what has been something that was appalling and maybe shocking and revolting for others has become for Paul a symbol of glory. It is what he thinks is the most important thing in his life. But if you notice in this verse 14 and, and, and 15 here, there are actually three crucifixions that are enumerated. First, he, we see that there's the crucifixion of Jesus that I just read about. That's what he's going to boast in. This is the controlling message of this whole letter. You, you see the thread of the cross from the beginning of the end. If you go back even to the opening of Galatians in chapter 1 and verse 4, he can't even get out of the greeting without referencing the cross. In verse 4 he says about Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. This idea of Jesus handing himself over uh, delivering himself, giving himself for us is a reference to the cross. His substitutionary death on the cross for our behalf. So we could be rescued from the present evil age. So Paul references Jesus' crucifixion, but then he also says that the world has been crucified. Maybe we don't think much about the world's crucifixion, but in Paul's mind, uh, that is the way he sees this present evil age, the world in which he lives. He said, it's been crucified. It's dead to me. It has no bearing on my life. There are no, it's, it still exists, but it's no consequence to me. I've, I've walled off this sinful world away from me. It used to be dominant over me, but now it has been dealt a death blow, and it has lost its controlling grip. Keep in mind that when Paul is talking in this context about the world, he's not talking about the people of the world. He's not talking about the, the, the world of nature that's around us. He's talking about that worldly, fleshly, sinful part of the world. And then he says, not only has the world been crucified, but then he says, he's been crucified. Paul speaks of his own crucifixion because the world's been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. Perhaps what Paul means by this is that I'm dead to the world. 
There's no more place in the world for me in its sinful construct. I don't belong there anymore. In his letter to the Romans, he said something similar in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about this idea of, of being married and being under control of the law. He said that once you were, you're married to the law, but now you have died and you're free to marry someone else and that new person being Christ. But, but you died. And here in similar fashion, Paul can think of himself as being crucified, dead to the world and the world to him. In uh, chapter 5, if you just look over on the facing page to verse 24, he says it like this. Not only about himself, but about you, about me as Christ's followers. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We, when we've been joined with Christ, we have put the flesh to death in our life. That's what God has done in us. And there's a completeness or wholeness, not just crucified the flesh, but along with the passions and desires that inflame the flesh. We put that to death. And then, of course, a passage that you probably know very well in the, from this letter, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. I, I'm, I'm co-crucified. Uh, Paul's saying it's like I was the, the thief on the cross right beside Jesus. Um, by being joined with Christ in his death, I go back to that day, to that hour, and I too am crucified with Christ. But nevertheless, I'm still living, right? He's talking metaphorically. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ is alive in me now. And I no longer live according to the flesh. But I'm going to live by the Spirit. The Spirit's going to empower me. Christ in me is going to live in and through me in this life in the flesh in which I now live. That's, that was reality for Paul. That was forefront in his mind. Christ's death, the world's death, and his own death. Of course, this dying to Christ has great implications, this union with Christ on how we should live, what we should do and what we should not do. And allow me just to read a, a few verses from Romans chapter 6 because Paul unpacks this for the Roman church uh, in, a, in a powerful way. In verse 12 of chapter 6, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, this flesh that we still live in, in this world, don't let it reign so that you obey its desires. Why? Because those desires and passions are dead. They're crucified to you. And do not offer any part of it to sin, no part of your body, as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourself to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. You see, in, in Paul's theology of salvation, there, there are two parts that both have to be emphasized. It's what we call the indicative, what God has done, and the imperative, what we must do. And both of these are true. So, so God has joined us with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. But we play a part in living that out by not surrendering the parts of our body to serve sin anymore. We have a new master. And we must obey him. The question I guess I have for you that maybe you're already thinking of yourself is, but why then do I so easily slip back into sin? 
if, if I'm supposed to be dead to the world, the world to me, and I have a new master, why is it that I slip back into sin so quickly, so easily? I don't know really the answer. It may be different for, for us at different times even, but it certainly it's because we are weak. We've not yet to learn to walk in the Spirit and to incorporate the power of the Spirit to live through us as Paul instructs us in this very letter. But oftentimes I think it's because we get distracted and we get forgetful of who we are and whose we are. But for Paul, it was impossible for him to forget who he was. He, he couldn't. Why? Because his life was marked by the cross. If you look down to verse 17 here in chapter 6, I want us to think about uh, this passage for just a bit. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Why? Because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This word marks is, is not a common word in the Greek New Testament. Um, stigmata is the word here. It's where we get our English word stigma. Um, it seems that in ancient uh, Greco-Roman literature, it was used in a couple different ways. Uh, these marks could be um, religious markings. Um, in some pagan religions, people would mark their bodies, tattoos, if you will, to show which uh, deity they worshipped, uh, something that actually is forbidden in the Old Testament. We won't get into discussion of whether Christians should be uh, tattooed or not. We'll leave that for another day. Now, but for Paul, he's probably not talking about this, um, although when they heard stigmata, they would, they would certainly know, oh, deeply religious people mark their bodies. Another way that it was sometimes used was the branding of a slave. An owner could mark a slave with a, a stigma, a sign or a symbol, uh, much like maybe in Alberta they brand cattle. Um, it seems like it was probably often used maybe for runaway slaves um, as punishment and as a reminder and a mark of ownership. I have a picture I want to ask Kathy if she would bring up here on um, our slide here. I don't know if you can see it well. Um, but this was a photograph I took uh, some years ago when I was in Rome at the National Museum of Rome. And what this actually is is a slave collar. It's an iron ring that would go around the neck, uh, and it had a, a bronze tablet attached to it. And probably even from where you're sitting, you can see there's some markings. There's an inscription on the, on the tab, if you will. And roughly translated from the Latin that's written here are these words. I have run away, seize me. When you have brought me back to my master Zoninus, you will receive a gold coin. That, that is so appalling to us. Again, this, this would not have been a shocking uh, inscription in the first century. But it certainly is in the 21st century. The idea of one person having ownership of another. But I wonder if it's not a good idea, uh, maybe even spiritually, for us to think of if we all wore collars and said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. If you find me in sin, grab me and drag me back the other way or something like that. This was a reminder, a constant reminder for that slave that he was not his own, that he had another master, that he belonged to another, he served another. And 
And that, I think, we can see a parallel for us today. Um, I brought something else to show you. Um, this is a, a cross, a silver cross on a, on a chain. Um, this was a gift that I received 45 years ago. Could it be that long? I actually, I actually got it from my first girlfriend. And, um, but uh, less than six months after she gave it, that she dumped me. So, um, and actually it worked out pretty good because within two or three years, I met my one true love. But uh, when I got this cross, um, I think she got it for me because I already had a cross that I think maybe it broke and it was pretty cheap and, and I got this nice one. So even after breaking up, I continued to wear this for four or five years. Why? Because for me, it was a, it was a silent reminder of Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it would be a daily reminder so that I wouldn't forget whose I was and whom I served. Um, after, I guess, we got married at some point early on, I, I just put it aside, I think maybe as a, I don't know, not to dishonor Susan, but I just stopped wearing it. Um, it ended up in a, in a box at my mom's house and in the attic, and there it sat for more than 30 years. Then um, we were home one summer and rummaging through the attic, and, and our, my younger son, Caleb, came across this and said, whoa, wow, look at this, this is cool, what is this? Can I have it? And I said, yeah, sure. You know. And so for the last, I don't know, four, five, six years, Caleb has had this cross and been wearing it. But a few months ago, I felt impressed of the Lord um, to, to begin wearing the cross again. Again, as, as, a, as a silent reminder to me so I don't forget whose I am and whom I serve. And so I asked Caleb if he, he'd bring it to me and could I borrow it from him. And he said yes, and he brought it back at Christmas. And uh, it's already given me opportunity for spiritual conversation. The first week I had it on. Uh, my three-and-a-half-year-old grandson saw the chain poking out from under my shirt. He said, Poppy, what's that? I said, oh, this is a necklace. Asher says, girls wear necklaces. <laughs> I said, well, sometimes guys do. And I, and I pulled out the cross. I said, do you know what this is? He said, no. He ran off and I played with his fire truck. So, you know, looking for that teaching moment with your grandchildren, sometimes it's not quite always there. But for me, it has become uh, something of a, a spiritual discipline to try to, again, bring an awareness back into my own life on a frequent and daily basis about uh, the cross as a symbol, as a sign, as a reminder of, our, of Christ's lordship in our life. But for, for Paul, the apostle, the stigmata, these, these marks, had nothing to do with a slave collar or a piece of jewelry. What likely then was he referencing? Most uh, interpreters will say that what Paul really was talking about were the marks in his body that he had physically from the sufferings that he had from preaching the gospel. Here's what Martin Luther has to say about this passage. The marks that are in my body show well enough whose servant I am. These are not marks of my own procuring but are laid upon me against my will by the world and the devil. For no other cause 
but that I preach Jesus to be the Christ. And I think he's right. Um, Paul, on more than one occasion, mentions the marks in his body in other letters, uh, probably most famously in 2 Corinthians. Listen again to this list as he's arguing with opponents in Corinth about his apostolic authority. He says, I have far more labors and many more imprisonments and far worse beatings many times near death. But they're boasting about all their great achievements. He's boasting in his weaknesses. He goes on to say, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me concerning all the churches. Um, Paul didn't go to a tattoo parlor and say, hey, I, I want a nice crucifix, you know, right here. Um, he, he had other marks that showed whose servant he was. It's, it's maybe a little bit challenging to know that he have all of these things in mind when he wrote to the Galatians. Why? Well, if he, that would depend on the Galatians being written, I mean, 2 Corinthians being written before Galatians. Or, or close at the same time. So we don't know if these were things Paul had already experienced when he's writing to Galatians, or if these were things yet to come that he didn't know about. In hindsight, maybe a, uh, a foreshadowing. But we know for certain that one of them had already occurred, and that is the stoning of Paul. It's recorded in Acts chapter 14. Go back and read that in verse 19. It's not very long a description. Ministry was going well, but some agitators and opponents from these other cities came to the city of Lystra, and they stoned Paul. Like, that means take big rocks and try to kill a brother. And they knocked him out and thought he was dead and dragged his body outside the city and left him for dead. But God raised him up. Lystra is a city that's in Galatia. It's one of the churches that received this letter. They would have known exactly what kind of marks that he bore in his body from serving Christ. I think this may be the origin for that expression. That's going to leave a mark. <laughs> Stoning. But those are the things that Paul experienced because of his love for Christ. That he freely and willingly gave his life back to Christ for whatever Christ would call him to do. Here are the words of the early church father Chrysostom on this passage in Galatians. These wounds utter a voice louder than a trumpet against those who say, I play the hypocrite in my teaching and speak what may please men. For no one who saw a soldier return from the battle bathed in blood, and with a thousand wounds would ever accuse him of cowardice. 
You can't accuse Paul of being a hypocrite. You can't accuse him of being coward because he bore on his very body the marks of Jesus. The thing that has marked his life was the cross and the toil it took to proclaim it. But what about me? And what about you? Maybe we don't have those physical marks yet. Maybe the cost of discipleship for us has not gotten to physical persecution. But one day it may. Wherever God scatters you on His globe to proclaim the gospel, that tough and difficult place of assignment for you may call that. But there may be other wounds that are less visible. My question for myself is if God were to hold the black light of His inspection across my soul, my life, what marks would he see? What would mark my life? There's a poem written by Amy Carmichael that I first heard more than 45 years ago that speaks to this very question. I'd like to read it to you today. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers. Spent, leaned me against the tree to die and rent by ravening beast that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yes. As the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far. Who has no wound. No scar. Let's pray together. In these moments of quietness. Would you take time to reflect on your own life talked about marks today, the things that might mark your life. What would people say marks your life? The master that you serve. Ask him to reveal anything that you might need to repent of, confess to him today. Do business with your Lord, I pray. Father, thank you for the cross. That implement of torture that's so horrifying to the ancient world has for us become a symbol of great beauty and love. Father, may we never forget or cease to remember the price that was paid for our salvation. Help us never shrink back from being identified with the cross of Christ, our Savior. Help us, like Paul, enter into as your servants, sharing in your suffering. 
Father, we don't know what cost it might take to see the gospel spread around this world in many places that are hostile to the teaching and preaching of the scriptures. Father, we want to be found faithful. In whatever position, whatever place of ministry you, you put us, Father, forgive us for our, our whining, for our weakness, for our complaining, uh, when the path might be steep price might be heavy. May the cross of Christ be that very thing that marks our lives. And may we daily remember whose we are and whom we serve. And it's in his name we pray.